time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. Supply my need, Jehovah is his name. In pastures green, he makes me feed beside the living stream. He brings my wandering spirit. When I forsake His ways And leads me for His mercy's sake In paths of truth and grace shades of death, His presence is my stay. One word of His redeeming grace drives all my fears away. His hand inside of all Still my table spread My cup with blessings overflows His oil anoints my
Returning to the shepherd of our soul. Returning to the shepherd of our soul. Almighty God, as I open this word today, would you quicken it by your spirit? And would you deal faithfully with our hearts? And would you bring us through into victory and into the pure light of God? I pray in your holy name. Amen. If Jesus were here to meet us at the conclusion of this service, would you be welcomed into the gates of the Lord? Or would there be uncleanness in your heart that would bar you from entering a holy place called the New Jerusalem? There is a place of victory and delight that we Americans have only imagined. We thought that victory and delight meant pay raises and recognition driving the right car and attending the right church, having the right social circle. That's not the kind of joy we need to speak about. It's a joy that wells up from inside the soul in the presence of Jesus and worships Him. This is very difficult for Americans because we're proud to be Americans. We worship America. And now what do we do as America crashes? We see now that mammon has feet of clay, sand. Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 27. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. When you commit your heart to Jesus Christ, you're not holy. When you totally surrender everything of your heart to Jesus, you're not holy yet. The scripture says that after you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap In other words, it's like planting corn. It's not mechanical. It's organic. And as that righteousness begins to be planted in us, it begins to grow in us. And the harvest that we're going to reap is called holiness. Holiness is being set utterly apart for the Lord God of heaven. Now, if you'll be honest with me today you will say there have been times when you have said, Jesus, I give myself unreservedly to you. Come in and rule over my life. And 30 minutes later, you were in charge of your life and you'd forgotten about what you'd said. That's why when we give our heart to Christ, holiness does not immediately come. Holiness is literally being set apart totally unto God, not leaving his presence, but walking constantly, day after day, in his presence. And as we do that, we become holy. We're set apart then. Totally set apart. And that's why John Wesley spoke about this in terms of two works of grace. 
The first work of grace was when a man was converted, when he was transformed, when he was changed into the likeness of Jesus. He had power to resist sin. But still those old roots would rise up in the heart and often those old roots would result in disobedience in the life of the Christian. And that's why John in 1 John said, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. If you'll confess your sins, he'll forgive you and he'll purify you from all unrighteousness. It's not our purpose to sin against God, but sometimes that old bitterness or that old anger or that lust will just seem to come right up out of our hearts. That's why there has to be a second work of grace that John Wesley spoke about, where finally we also die to the roots of our life and we're utterly changed into the likeness of Jesus. Holiness is not mechanical, it's organic. And so today, if you have given your heart to Jesus Christ, you have utterly committed your way to him, and yet today you come in here under a load of guilt because those old roots you recognize are still there. Don't turn into darkness, but turn toward the light and continue to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, deliver me even from the root of sin in my heart that I will be utterly clean before you. We've been called to become overcomers. The Lord reminded me of this story in Genesis, the fourth chapter, of Cain and Abel. Cain was the son of promise. After the first sin and the breakup of that wonderful garden life, after they had to earn their bread by the sweat of their brow, Cain was born. And Cain helped dad in the fields. He was the eldest son. Then Abel was born, but Abel did not join in the farming. He took care of the animals, the livestock, the lambs, the goats, the cattle. And it came time to bring their offerings before the Lord. And Cain said, I'll bring the best of what I have and give to God. It's very clear right at the beginning of the scriptures that God is not interested in your best. He turned Cain down. Cain brought the best that he could produce and it was not good enough for God. Instead, God wanted the sacrifice of the lamb. And it made Cain angry. He said, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I give God my best and he says I'm not interested. He became very angry. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it or overcome it. The source of Cain's anger was the bitterness that his best would not be accepted. He owned 
his crops. And he was bringing to God his best and saying, this is who I am, God, I give it to you. I'm the best. The great sin that blocks the work of the gospel in our hearts is that we sit on our own throne. We pray from our own throne. We defend our own throne. Our territory. It's our garden. We're raising the best we can raise in our garden. And God, I'll give you a piece of it, but you better accept it. And when God says no, it makes us angry. Makes me angry. Why did I work so hard if what I work for is not acceptable before God? We can serve God in our flesh, but it's not acceptable service. We can be very religious in our flesh. The flesh loves to be religious. We love the ritual of worship. We love the the music. We love the show. We love the warm, fuzzy feelings of worship. Very sentimental. It's not acceptable to God. The only thing that's acceptable to God is the offering of the perfect lamb. So what do you bring to God today? Do you bring the best you have? Or have you brought today in your heart the Lamb of God? Is your standing before God based on your hard work? Or is it based on the blood of Jesus Christ? All the difference in the world. When the scripture, and I'm going to walk you through many scriptures very quickly today in the book of Revelation. But you'll find that every time in scripture that it calls us to become overcomers, what we are to overcome is the offering of our best. What we're to overcome is the offering of what we like and what we want. What we have to overcome is our ownership of everything. Our ownership of our money, our ownership of our relationships, our ownership of our children, the ownership of stuff. This is mine. How many times has a little child come up to you? This is mine. What have you gone to God with and said, this is mine? And I'm willing to strike a deal with you. I'll give it to you if you'll give me the blessings. But remember, God, even after I give it to you, I'm still in charge of it. So let's look at some examples of overcoming. In Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 22 Romans 6, verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. With that understanding, go with me to Revelation, the first chapter, verse 17. When I sought him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So the words I'm going to now share with you are being given to us by the one who holds the key to either giving you life or sending you to hell. Certainly that's a man I'd like to listen to carefully. He begins in chapter 2 by giving messages to seven churches. These have been interpreted historically in two ways. One, there has been the thought that these seven churches represented seven historical periods. And that today we are in the last period called Laodicea or the seventh church. Other commentators have said, no, every age has needed to listen to every message. Now, I don't care which of these you hold to, but note with me one significant part of each one of these letters. In chapter 2, we begin with the church in Ephesus, and he says... I hold this against you in verse 4. You have forsaken your first love. In other words, you've become cold-hearted. You're theologically correct, but you've become cold-hearted. You no longer come to me with passion. You come to me with just your intellect. You now come as a ritual, but not as a passion. My wife would certainly not be happy if I came to her ritually. Well, it's time to spend time with my wife. It's two o'clock. I'm here, Jan. Let's sit down and talk. Let's do something together. It's two o'clock. That's our time. No, that's not a relationship. And the Lord is coming and saying, I don't want this mechanical relationship with you. I want something that's passionate and it's alive. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there is an overcoming that must happen in the church at Ephesus, and it's the overcoming of a cold and passionless heart. He writes to the pastor or the angel of the church in Smyrna, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be heard at all by the second death. The pastor at the church or the angel at the church of Pergamum. I have a few things against you, verse 14. You have people here who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. 
by eating food sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaeans. The Nicolaeans believed in once saved, always saved. They believed that you could continue to walk in sin, and at the same time, you could be holy before God. That was the Gnostic belief. Notice in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. You know what the manna is. It's the body of Christ. It's the bread broken for us. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. In that day, when you drew lots... If you drew the white stone, you were selected. So he's literally saying, if you will overcome, I will give you my body to eat. And I will select you out of all those and you will be my special possession. This is the promise to the overcomer. To the church at Thyatira. Verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality but she's still unwilling. Verse 23, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Chapter 3. To the angel of the church or the pastor of the church in Sardis. You understand the word angel simply means messenger. Just It simply means messenger. It can be a heavenly messenger or it can be a human messenger. It can be a pastoral messenger. It's one who brings the message of God. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. In other words, you've got a rock and roll church. Everything's hopping and popping. It looks great. It looks, you're dead. There's no passion in your heart for holiness. There's no passion to follow the way of the cross. Everything is about flesh. I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Are you beginning to pick up a common theme here? See, it was the Gnostics who taught that there was a division between the body and the soul. They're the ones who taught that you could take a human being's spirit and thrust it into the sewer. And they said, that's the body misbehaving in the flesh, going after everything of wickedness. But you pull that spirit up out of that flesh and wash it off, and it's clean, it's untouched. And so they said, you don't need to worry about walking in righteousness before God. 
Do whatever you want to do in your flesh. It's wicked anyway. You can't help it. But your spirit is pure before God and you're going to be saved just like you are. Sound familiar to today's modern theology? These were the Gnostics. They refused to recognize any kind of connection between the judgment God would bring on your life and the actual steps that you walked in day by day when nobody was looking. So Jesus says to them, you must be an overcomer. The church at Philadelphia, he holds no judgment on the church of Philadelphia. They are a church of incredible passion and love. They're a church walking in the purity of the word. But he still says in verse 12, even to these righteous people, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. There is no salvation outside of overcoming. Now, why would that be true? Because Jesus Christ, death on the cross, provided everything necessary for us to have the authority and the power to walk as overcoming Christians. There is no shortage of power to walk holy before God. There is simply that ownership issue. This is my life. I have a right to mess it up if I want to. Because it's mine. I can do what I want and there are no consequences for what I do. And some of you were not blessed with a mother or a father who instantly brought judgment upon you when you walked in disobedience to them. They believed in Dr. Spock's method. They were permissive with you. And so discipline seems like a foreign thing to you. Some of you, it's strange. You don't even think about getting up in the morning and making your bed. Why make my bed? I'm going to walk out of the house. When I get home, it'll be ready for me to get back into. That's a discipline that's strange to you. For some of you, I suspect that it's strange to think that when you're finished with a meal, sitting down together, oh, do you eat over the sink or do you sit down and eat together? For some of you, it would be strange to sit down and eat together. Everybody's too busy. Everybody grabs and growls. Total lack of discipline. Everybody is into their own life and their own stuff. And we don't have time to sit down and break bread together. You think you're going to get Jesus like a McDonald's that you can stuff down your throat as you're driving down the highway? Do you think the bread of Christ is a McDonald's? No. And some of you, you eat at the table and then walk away and leave everything right there. I would almost guess that I could go to some of your homes this morning or this afternoon and find breakfast still on the table. Dirty dishes, not even piled in the sink. Total lack of discipline. Your life is so important to you 
that you refuse to submit to even the simplest disciplines that mom and dad used to teach. And maybe your mom and dad didn't, but your grandma and grandpa did. Because there is an orderly way to live before the Lord that is respectful, recognizing that my home is the house of the Almighty God. Honor the word of the Holy Ghost in your heart and recognize this is not your life. This is Jesus' life. And the overcoming being spoken of here in Scripture is the overcoming that is in obedience to the Holy Spirit's voice in your heart so that you do what he asks you to do. And you submit to the disciplines the Holy Spirit brings on your heart. We've spoken of this many times out of John, the 15th chapter, where there are places of abiding that he begins to call us into. Where he says, don't listen to that anymore. And you say, okay, I'll turn off that music. Or he says, don't watch that anymore. Okay, I'll turn that off. Or he says, don't go there anymore. And we say, okay, I won't go there anymore. And those places then become places of abiding where the Lord speaks to us and he says, don't do that. Or he says, do this. And as we walk in obedience to that, those things become places of abiding where we know before God we have the victory in Jesus. And our faith strengthens and our character strengthens until finally every part of your life is an abiding place with Jesus. And you don't have any place to hide in anymore that belongs to you. That's what this Christian walk is about. Overcoming. Not by trying hard. It's not try hard religion. It's by coming under the authority of the Holy Spirit and allowing him to have charge of our lives. Listening to what he tells us and allowing him by the power of the blood to equip and to enable us to abide in the places he calls us to. Are you abiding today in Jesus? Or are you abiding in your own life? If you're abiding in your own life in any area, that is a place where you must overcome or there will be a door open to darkness that will flood your soul and destroy your confidence in Jesus, steal your joy, and cause you to walk under condemnation. In Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. There is only love and joy and peace and long-suffering as the fruit of the Spirit is birthed in us. Now come with me to the church at Laodicea. Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That word spit in the Greek is literally vomit. You can't stand the taste. Have you ever put something in your mouth and it tastes so bad you just blah? Jesus is saying you taste that bad in my mouth. Well, what would make him say such a thing? Seems crude, doesn't it? No, it's not his words that are crude. It's the life of a person who thinks he can waltz through life, casually traveling, having his own way, making his own judgments, 
lifting up his own accusations, walking in the, own, in the bitterness of his own spirit, criticizing and gossiping, lusting after everything that comes his way that he thinks he'd like, and if he just had the money, he'd buy it. That's the church at Laodicea. And finally he says, verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. You notice the most wonderful promise given to any of the churches is given to the church at Laodicea. I believe this is the last day church. And never in the history of the world has there been such a seductive and wicked attack by the devil against those who would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe because of that, because of that, the most incredible promise is given that he will even come in and sit with us and we will sit with him. Notice verse 19. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. God is saying, look, I'm even willing to forget that you're my enemy. You can come into my house. We'll sit together and break bread together, which is in this culture the highest symbol of hospitality. He's saying, come and sit with me. Oh, I want to hear the Lord Jesus say to me, come eat with me. Can you imagine the God of heaven saying to one of his creatures, come, sit with me. Kings don't eat with common people. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords knows no common people. We are called to be overcomers by the blood of Jesus. Now, could we just be very honest with one another? If there are still areas in your life where you have refused to allow God to have the authority and the rule, you are not an overcomer. And I've shown you that in every message to every church, the standard of entering into the kingdom of God is to become an overcomer. Now, you're either not an overcomer because you believe you can get away with it, or because you've given up on life and you're going to go to hell anyway, so what's the use? And both are wrong. There's not one of you here who has sinned away the grace of God. There's not one of you here who cannot be redeemed and restored and made into the complete likeness of Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. That's what the word says in Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Today is the day of salvation. So then that brings us to the only other conclusion possible. And that is we don't want to give up the ownership of our lives. Now, there might be several reasons why we don't want to give up the ownership of our lives. One of the reasons might be that we believe that if we give up the ownership of our lives, we're going to be miserable. That God will treat us unfairly 
and that he will be unjust and unkind to us. And Jesus was accused a number of times in Scripture of being an unjust God. And always it was the devil who was doing it. It's the devil who's unjust. It's the devil who comes and steals and robs and kills. It was Jesus who came and died for us. So we might say, Jesus, I'm afraid to give you my life because if I give you my life, I might be miserable. Well, what's your happiness quotient right now? You know, that's like the demoniac. He's out there in the, in the graveyard living as a homeless man, filled with the demon spirit, yelling and screaming, cutting himself, being beat up. And he says to Jesus, don't torture me. What's torture if that's not torture? What's torture if living with constant insecurity and depression and discouragement and and struggle, what's torture if, if not living and walking in sin and disobedience before God and lying to each other and stealing and and What's torture if that's not torture? What's not torture if you don't have to slave out every moment to get a dollar to take care of your responsibilities and then they're never enough? Isn't that torture? Isn't torture being thousands of dollars in debt and not being able to meet the payments? Isn't that torture? Wondering how you're going to make tomorrow. Isn't that torture? A follower of Jesus Christ does not walk in that torture. I remember when I came through, God had taken everything away from me, trying to get my attention. He'd taken the cars, he'd taken the houses, he'd taken the savings, he'd taken investments, he'd I mean, I thought I was so smart because I had heavily invested in the airline industry. And then the one I chose went bankrupt. And all my investments were gone, in overnight gone. My stockbroker called me to tell me. I said, why didn't you see it coming and sell it like you were supposed to? He was a good friend up till then. It was gone. Remember running up those credit cards. Have you ever had to go buy your groceries on a credit card? Oh, yeah. Have you ever had to get a new credit card to pay, to pay off the old credit card? And then there's not enough space on that one, so you can't pay it all off, so you have to get another credit card to pay off that amount. And then each month you try to just circle around the wagons, but slowly you get deeper and deeper in debt. And then the car breaks down, and what are you going to do? You have to have a car. So you go flip the card out. I mean, the card is cash, right? Until finally it was $70,000 in credit card debt without a job and with no hope. God finally got my attention. I cried out against him, and he answered. I said, I'm going to die if you don't do something. He said, good, I'm waiting for you to die. Why don't you just go ahead and die? 
How can you say this to me, God? Look what I've gone through, all for being a pastor and starting a new church. He said, very bluntly, you were bought at a price. You are not your own. That was the issue. He was after that issue the whole time. You're not your own. I bought you at Calvary. I said, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. And I was born again. And joy and peace came into my heart. It was almost 24 hours before I could even speak. I was overwhelmed. I was overcome. There was no food in the house. Everything was at the bottom dollar. I was going to be evicted. My car had a repo order on it. Everything was as low as it could possibly go. And God stepped in. By the year 2000, that $70,000 had been repaid. Every dime of it. Supernaturally waiting on God. Now, as we made that last payment on those $70,000, do you think we were weeping and crying and say, God, how could you treat us so badly? No. We were rejoicing. We were having a Jesus party. We were praying. We were lifting up our hands in praise and singing psalms of praise. And we were telling everybody, our, our family, everybody who talked to us who didn't think we'd gone crazy. Most of them thought we'd already lost it. The torture is serving the devil. The freedom comes in serving Jesus Christ and submitting our lives to him. Now, you may not be where I was, but you may be on your way there. How low do you have to go before you finally are willing to give up your pride and willing to let Jesus make you into an overcomer? It's only pride that keeps us in ownership of our lives. We think that there is some way, like a cat with nine lives, some way I'm going to make it through this And I'm going to say, look at how I did it. That might have happened if you had not come to this church. But by coming here, you've now heard the word. And like a disease, you've been exposed. You have been infected today by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are now no longer free to walk in wickedness without judgment coming on your life. The Lord has called you, and he is not going to release you from that call. He's called you to become an overcomer. I want to take you back to the book of Romans very quickly. Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 18 You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's what we're called to be. Freed from sin, set free from sin. 
and slaves of righteousness. Now, I want to simply bear testimony. I've been set free from sin. I'm not going to walk out of this house this afternoon and walk into sin. Will I make mistakes? Yes. Will I, will I be immature about some things? Yes, because I'm not all grown up yet. I'm still a child in many respects. But I've been set free from my sin. If I walk back into my sin, I know it's simply because I chose to walk back into my sin, not because I had no power over whether or not I was going to walk into it. I do not possess my life. Jesus possesses my life. My life is no longer a life of torture. It's a life of peace and joy and expectancy in Jesus Christ. Sin is defined in the book of 1 John as rebellion against God. The rebellion in my heart has been taken away by a gift of grace from Jesus. God is no respecter of persons. If he's done this for me, he'll do it for you. He will take away from your heart the lust towards sin. All you have to do is come before him and admit it and ask him to do this work of grace in your heart. Some of you have been born again and you've gone right back to your sin until it captured you and today it holds you captive. How do you get out of it? Not the way you got into it. You get out of it by going into your prayer closet and lifting your hands up to Jesus and staying there and asking him to set you right with him again and to remove from you this bondage of sin that seems to be incontrollable over your heart and ask him to set you free and he'll set you free. We no longer have to walk in sin and darkness. We've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can walk today in victory and in power without depression and discouragement and bondage. We can walk in freedom before Jesus, loving one another, not battling and fighting and squabbling, but walk free in Jesus with hearts of compassion and love, love poured out from one another. I call that a gift worth receiving. Some of you have some weeping to do before God before you receive that gift. You have, some, you have some work you need to do with God. You need to do business with God. You need to go get before him. You don't need another man to hear it or another woman to hear it. You need the Holy Spirit to hear it. You need to deal with that ownership of your life and give it to Jesus. Mighty God, thank you for setting me free. Thank you that I no longer walk in this bondage of despair and darkness. No longer walking in the torture of sin. Thank you for the victory, Jesus. Thank you for the love you've put in my heart. Lord, I pray now for each person in this house that each 
will quickly join me in this walk. Lord, I thank you for those who have already found this same victory. Lord, we wait now to be entirely sanctified, that even the roots will be taken out of our hearts. But Lord, first there has to be the new birth. Lord, set us free. Was it any wonder they shouted Hosanna to you? Which in that day meant set us free, Jesus. Lord, we say Hosanna today. Set us free. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Come every soul by sin oppressed. so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us at nationalprayerchapel.com. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. Before the presence of His glory With great joy With great joy Now unto Him who is able To keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of His glory With great
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory 